Welcome back to the New York Baseball Podcast. My name is Ari Weiss. I'm sitting alongside Noah Schneider. Today we have a very special guest, the legendary broadcaster and Emmy Award winner, Bob Costas. He has, a 30, he has had a 39-year tenure on NBC Sports, notably serving as primetime host for 11 Olympic Games. He has also been on the call for MLB and NFL games, including numerous World Series games. He currently appears on MLB Network as a play-by-play announcer and as a contributor to CNN. Welcome, Bob. How are you? Hello, guys. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank Very you so well. much for coming on today. We appreciate it. Yeah, so I just kind of get started. I kind of wanted to ask you kind of how your career started. So we know that you went to Syracuse and you graduated in 1974 and you kind of worked for the radio and TV there. So can you just kind of tell us it, like if you were always interested in sports casting and how your career kind of started? Yeah, I've been interested in sports broadcasting since I was a little kid. As a sports fan, I really couldn't separate the sounds of the broadcast from the games themselves. And I took note of the different styles of the various broadcasters on both radio and television. And in the early 1970s, when I went to college, Syracuse was way ahead of the curve in having a public communications Department Now virtually every college or university has one. They're of varying quality, but almost every school has one. Uh, Syracuse was among the first and remains at or near the top of those who offer the best possible education when it comes to journalism and broadcasting and communications in general. And that reputation has only grown through the years. Uh, now there are dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of broadcasters, many of them, in fact, the majority of them in sports, but not exclusively in sports, uh, who got their education at Syracuse. Uh, I went there because I was aware that Marty Glickman, who was the original voice of the New York Knicks and the radio voice of the New York Giants uh, in football, among other sports, Marty Glickman had gone to Syracuse, where he had been an athlete and then a broadcaster, and Marv Albert, his protege, had also gone to Syracuse. I subsequently found out that Len Berman had gone to Syracuse and Dick Stockton ahead of me and Ted Koppel on the new side and since then many, many others, Mike Tirico, Sean McDonough, Ian Eagle, I'm leaving a bunch of people out. So I went to Syracuse for that reason, grew up on Long Island, uh, so it's about a five-hour drive from my home to the Syracuse campus, went to Syracuse and was able to work on the campus radio station almost right away just a few months into my freshman year. And then when I was a senior, I got a job broadcasting minor league hockey on the radio, and the radio station was connected to an NBC television affiliate. So eventually I began doing a variety of reports, news as well as sports, even the weather now and then on both radio and television. It was a good grounding in basic broadcasting. And shortly after that, by a stroke of luck, I landed a job in St. Louis at a major radio station, KMOX, 50,000-watt station, longtime flagship of the massive Cardinal Baseball Network. So I went there when I was 22 years old to do games in the old ABA before the ABA was absorbed by the NBA. So I got a very early start in some prominent places, and that brought me to the attention of the television networks. And I did some freelance stuff for CBS TV when I was in my mid-20s, and by the time I was in my late 20s, I found myself at NBC. Yeah, I've heard – I'm actually in the college admissions process right now, and, and I've heard that Syracuse has one of the best broadcasting programs in all of the country, and especially since you came out of there, I mean, the legendary broadcaster that you are, so that's amazing. Um, so 
our next question here is going to be kind of like a bundle. So we want to know what was like the turning point of your career when you really knew that you were going to be like this legendary broadcaster that you are, as well as your favorite memory, one that kind of sticks out above the rest of there is one. I don't know that there's any one turning point. I had uh, some lucky circumstances that opened doors for me, not just going to NBC, but then Brian Gumble left NBC Sports to go to the Today Show in the early 1980s. And I had been doing play-by-play of games and doing pretty well with that. Uh, but they decided that I could fill most of his assignments as the host of major events on NBC. So I began hosting their football coverage. Shortly after that, when they got the NBA, uh, I became the host of the NBA broadcast, also doing some play-by-play of NBA games. And that logically led to me becoming the primetime host of the Olympics. Now, if I had messed it up at the beginning, I'm sure they would have found somebody else. But it turned out all right, and I wound up uh, hosting every NBC Olympics between 1992 and 2016. So maybe uh, if I was to pick one thing, and there were several moments where things had broken differently, I wouldn't have wound up being quite as fortunate as I was. But if I had to pick one, it would probably be that Brian Gumbel decided to leave sports and go to the Today Show, and that opened up all the hosting assignments at NBC for somebody, and that somebody was me. Uh, yeah, well, that's that's and it goes to like the littlest moment that could possibly be. Like it has the biggest profound impact, and that's awesome. So, uh, what what is your like? If there, I know you've you've had so much experience calling games of various sports and everything. Uh, and this is going to be a really tough question. Cause I know there are so many, but maybe a top three memories that you've had in your career. If you can't pick just one, just maybe like ones that you know when you were just starting, or I I guess you can take it from here. <laughs> Well, I guess I'll pick one from each of the sports with which I'm most closely associated and I feel uh, the greatest connection to. Uh, In baseball, I was not doing play-by-play of this game. I was the pregame and postgame host. Uh, When Kirk Gibson hit his pinch hit home run in game one of the 1988 World Series for the Dodgers against the Oakland A's, it's one of the most dramatic moments in baseball history, and it was captured brilliantly on television by Vin Scully and on radio by Jack Buck. Uh, but just being part of that and interviewing Kirk Gibson immediately afterwards on the field and then being part of recapping it and reshaping it with the way we came on the air before game two the next night, that's connected me to that moment. Uh, not in as dramatic a sense as Vin is connected or Jack Buck was connected, but to some small extent I'm connected to that moment Uh, basketball is my second favorite sport after baseball and I had the call of what essentially was Michael Jordan's last shot in the NBA he did come back three years later with the Washington Wizards because he just had so much of a competitive itch he couldn't stay away but for dramatic purposes the curtain came down in June of 1998 and it was documented this past summer on ESPN in the last dance series where not only did Jordan and the Bulls win their sixth NBA championship of the 90s, but the way it ended, uh, a sequence of plays on the last minute of the game in which Jordan made the basket that cut the deficit to one, then stole the ball from Carl Malone, never relinquished it, brought it out of the backcourt into the frontcourt, took the last shot with five seconds to go, made the shot, turned a one-point deficit into a one-point victory, and that, in essence, ended the Bulls' dynasty and Jordan's Bulls' career. 
And luckily, when you look back on these things, and the greatest broadcasters, Al Michaels and Vin Scully and Jim McKay on the Olympics and Jack Buck and others, the greatest broadcasters rise to those occasions and their calls or commentary in those moments still hold up years later. And at least in that one instance, what I said, not not only on the shot, but in the moments leading up to it and the moments after it, framing the whole thing, uh, that holds up pretty well more than two decades later. So I'm happy with that. So that would be the second one. And the third one I'll pick from the Olympics. I could probably pick 20 or 30 of them, but the one I'll go with is Muhammad Ali lighting the torch at the opening ceremony in Atlanta in 1996. It was a, a dramatic and in many ways historic moment uh, that gave, I think, everyone in the stadium and most of the people watching at home goosebumps. Wow, yeah. yeah and, so, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, those are some great uh, memories. And also, I know you brought up some great broadcasters like Jack Buck and Vince Scully. Is there a certain broadcaster that you kind of look up to the most that kind of inspires you? I wouldn't want to single anyone out. And I have never tried to directly copy anyone, mm. but you can be influenced by them. Just as Vin Scully was influenced by his mentor, Red Barber, with the Brooklyn Dodgers, not to copy the style so much, but preparation, meticulous attention to detail, all of that sort of thing. Uh, he influenced Vin to let the crowd play a role, even on radio, uh, where there is no picture. Step aside, let the crowd fill in some of the emotion and some of the sense of the moment. So I think I've been influenced by listening to Vin Scully. I was influenced by spending a good portion of my career and life in St. Louis and by listening to Jack Buck, uh, who had a dry sense of humor and didn't uh, hesitate to bring that to bear during a broadcast. Jim McKay and I are different people, but he reminded me when I was about to host my first Olympics as the primetime host, he said, look, yes, this is a sports event, but it's something bigger than that. It's a travel log. It's a cultural panorama. Uh, it's it's a mosaic that goes beyond the specific outcome of events. And it's the job of the primary host to be a good generalist who has an understanding of the history of it uh, and some of the cultural aspects of it, uh, the host city, the host nation, that sort of thing. It's your job to have that overview. Uh, and it's someone else's job to know every last bit of minutia about platform divers from Peru or cross-country skiers from Norway. So those are just three examples of great broadcasters who influenced me, but I never directly copied them. For sure. And we were talking to Bob Costas, the legendary broadcaster. And, Bob, that kind of reminds me of uh, what I've been watching on MLB Network as of late with all the broadcasters. You and Tom Berducci host this program called The Sounds of Baseball. And that's just like the show highlighting all of these like famous broadcasters. The specific ones I remember watching are the ones about Vince Scully and Harry Carey. Um, what was it like taping those and going through all? I'm sure like all people you look up to and like all those legendary broadcasters. What was it like recording those uh, programs on MLB Network with Tom Berducci? You know what the best part of it was, and Tom uh, was very instrumental as well because he has deep knowledge of all things baseball. And even though I'm the broadcaster among the two of us, although Tom does work on television, obviously, uh, he was able to bring as much insight and as much particular anecdotal material to it as I was. So that helped to make 
uh, the programs all the better. But what I took away from it most of all was that it's a keepsake for those broadcasters and their families. You know, now we have access to everything. Uh, it's easy to DVR things on television. It's easy to send a Vimeo. Uh, it's easy to access almost everything. But back when Vin Scully was doing what he was doing, uh, first with the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 50s, then through much of his career with the Los Angeles Dodgers, that stuff was not at his fingertips. We were able to give him, and by extension his children and grandchildren, a very good two-hour compendium of his great career. And, and Vin is appreciative of that. Al Michaels is known to most people, especially younger people, as a great football announcer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He said to us after uh, watching that program that this was a gift not just for him but for his grandchildren who don't remember him as a baseball broadcaster. He said, look, I've got a storage room filled with old VHS tapes unwieldy VHS tapes where they go maybe for an hour. So to get a whole game, you'd need three or four of them. Now I've got the essence of it all in one place. Jack Buck passed away many years ago, but I heard immediately uh, from his son Joe and one of his daughters uh, who expressed his widow's appreciation and their appreciation that we had done justice to their dad. Uh, same thing with Joe Garagiola's son. Joe passed away some years ago. So what I'm getting to is that these are not just enjoyable programs to watch, but I think in their own modest way, they have become and will become part of the historical record. Yeah, for sure. Those are some great broadcasters. I just remember I was in Los Angeles a few years ago and Dodger Stadium. I'm sure you know all the traffic, so didn't get there until a couple innings in the game, but just listening to Vince Scully and just all the information he knew about the players and their like their daily lives was just unbelievable. How how knowledgeable Vince Scully was even I think it was back in twenty thirteen, how much he knew. But just kind well, of moving on. You know, the yeah, Dodgers yeah. the Dodgers um obviously recognized uh how valuable Vin was to their fan base. And so I don't know mm-hmm. if you realize this or not, but for the first two or three innings It's a simulcast, or was. He was on television, Mm -hmm. yes, but those opening innings were on the radio because they reasoned that a certain portion of the audience might just be getting home from work or they're on their way to dinner, whatever it is. A certain portion of the audience uh, was stuck in traffic or on the the freeway Mm -hmm. one way or the other around Los Angeles, so the radio audience got him for about a third of the game before it became exclusively television at the, at that point. Uh, so he was doing a broadcast that, at least on the television side, contained more information and more talking than it would from about the third or fourth inning on. At the beginning, that's when he was really loading up on the stuff because it was for a radio audience as well as a television audience. For sure. And yes, for sure. Yep. So, yeah, kind of moving on. Yeah, just talking about, like, preparation. So we have a lot of young listeners that kind of want to know, like, what's your day kind of like? So do you want to talk about your preparation for a game? And also, even after, like, 40 years, 40-plus years of broadcasting all these sports, do you still need to do a lot of preparation to do a game? Well, some of the preparation I bring with me from my experience and what I've retained through all the years. So some of it is background. Some of it you haven't specifically prepared for a moment or for an event, but it just comes to you and seems relevant at the time. But for each individual game, 
Uh, you still do, or I still do, extensive preparation. And luckily, things have become more and more sophisticated through the years. So the MLB network, for example, has an entire research department. It used to be you had like maybe one statistician who worked with you. Now they have an entire research department. And as we said, the technology uh, allows for easier access uh, than before. So we receive an entire research packet for each game. And that supplements the reading that I've done leading up to it, the games that I've watched leading up to it on the MLB network. And in my days at NBC, generally speaking, you were only doing one game a week, so you weren't doing a game on Tuesday, then another one on Wednesday, mm-hmm. unless you were doing a postseason series. So that gives me, in a normal year, not this year with COVID, but in a normal year, that gives me basically a week between games uh, to focus on the game upcoming, to think about what the pitching matchup would be, uh, and to narrow my focus on that one game rather than baseball overall. For sure. And the preparation is really, honestly, as you said, like one of the keys just to be able to have all that knowledge. And any good broadcaster really knows the game inside and out. And you're a prime example of that. So um, what we're going to allude to next is a little more of a serious topic. Obviously, in this like state of the world, obviously, there's COVID. There are protests going on. There's all sorts of things that are happening right now. And that's even kind of dips into the sports world a little bit with baseball players, basketball players, uh, ball players, various signs, various forms of peaceful protests, kneeling, wearing Black Lives Matter on the back of their jerseys in the NBA. And all, even what the Mets and Marlins did that one game, I'm not sure if you saw that, where they didn't, they took the field for a, a few minutes or 42 seconds and they, uh, and they left. So we kind of wanted to know, uh, and obviously you are a contributor for CNN, so I've heard some of your interviews on that network. Uh, what your opinion is and uh, what, what your take is on all these athletes really speaking up and peacefully protesting? Well, there's no one opinion that covers every circumstance. You can be in general sympathy with a cause and not agree with every single thing that someone uh, under the banner of that cause says or does. Uh, but in general, this is a unique moment in time, not just because of uh, all the social justice issues seemingly coming together, but as you said, COVID, and that means that with the exception of a sprinkling of fans on this first weekend in the NFL, these games are taking place in in parks. You have a different dynamic if the Mets and Marlins walked off the field with a packed house sitting there having paid for tickets and coming to the game, even those in basic sympathy with the cause that they were trying to highlight might be annoyed and even alienated uh, if they if they were sitting there and then there was no game. So this this set of circumstances is unique, and it offers an opportunity for people to protest or make their opinions known, hopefully in a thoughtful and informed way, and for a conversation to take place, an ongoing conversation that will go beyond this moment, an ongoing conversation about all these issues that hopefully will have more depth than slogans or symbolic protests, which have their place. But down the road, the conversation will become, I would hope, more textured um, and allow for honest give and take. Yeah, for sure. I know, you know, it kind of started with Colin Kaepernick, but it kind of went, when he first did it, a lot of people were more against it. I feel like over the years and with the George Floyd incident, 
many more have been accepting of it. Have you seen that as well? Yeah, yes. Uh, in fact, the recent polling is that a majority of Americans overall and a substantial majority of younger Americans believe it is appropriate to athlete, for athletes to use uh, their platform. Um, but the, I guess the question is going forward, uh, how responsibly uh, and how well-informed uh, are, are these are the athletes? Uh, most of them are. But not everything that's said in the name of a cause is automatically true or not subject to some debate or questioning. Right. And I didn't even think of this, Bob, before you said it. You're 100% correct with the different set of circumstances. In normal season, if, if what the Mets tomorrow did, what they did, there there, there would probably be a lot of uh, backlash about the paying for the tickets. But you are right. In, a, in an empty stadium, it really provides opportunities to do this. And if there's any light that can be taken out of that, I guess, the fact that you're able to do that without too many repercussions is, is a good thing for uh, the state of this country. Um, but, no, I'm going to turn it over to you for our next MLB question. Yes, I know, Mom, you've said, I mean, we know you're a huge baseball fan. So I kind of just want to get your take on the news from today about how the Major League Baseball, they're going to be doing a playoff bubble with no off days. I mean, obviously we've seen some problems with coronavirus in baseball, specifically with the Marlins and the Cardinals having major outbreaks. So what's your opinion on the playoff bubble, and do you think this is the right call for Major League Baseball? Yeah, I think they've thought it through, and it makes complete sense. Uh, they will play the best two out of three wild card series on the home field of the higher-seeded team. But after that, they'll be sort of in bubbles. It's not going to be as enclosed a bubble as mm-hmm. the NBA and the NHL uh, were able to create, but something close to that without home field advantages of any kind. Uh, the American League games will be played at Dodger Stadium and in San Diego at, at Petco Park. And the National League games will be played in Houston and at the new ballpark in Arlington. But we know that the, uh, we know that the Rangers can't make the postseason anyway. Uh, and those, right. so those are both American League parks, but the Rangers are not involved either way. And National League games will be played there. Uh, they want to get through it as quickly as possible. And so, with the exception of the World Series, where there will be off days, as I understand it, in all the other rounds, no off days. And so, that's going to create a different competitive dynamic than what we're used to in the postseason, where with multiple off days, unlike in the regular season, you're able to use your better starting pitchers more often. Now, pitching depth is going to be very, very important when possibly in the LCS, for example, you could be playing seven games in seven days with no off days. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, I think they thought it through both from uh, a safety standpoint and a competitive standpoint and a television standpoint. They've had to balance all those issues. I think they've done a good job of it. But like almost everything else in this season, it creates a different set of circumstances than in any other season. And, yeah, you're right, Bob. And, and uh, that leads me to my next question. So, obviously, there are 16 teams in the playoffs this season, more than ever before. Out of any team that is not in the playoffs right now, who? It, it, let, me, let me put it this way. Uh, my bad. If you have to choose one team to make it that's not in it right now, who is your team for Major League? I'd have to take a look at today's standings, <laughs> and I'm not sure that I 
that I have a comprehensive view of it. I know that the Astros are kind of on the bubble, no pun intended, but in terms of personnel, they're a very good team. Uh, the Cardinals have had a rocky season and have to play a brutal schedule with more games than there are days remaining and all these seven-inning doubleheaders mixed in. But the Cardinals generally, you would think, are a playoff-quality team. Uh, only a few teams are not within striking distance. Uh, so that makes it somewhat interesting. If you buy into the fact that uh, these are circumstances unlike any other before or likely since, then you can enjoy it on that basis. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I to, before we ask, I just want to ask you like a quick question about just baseball. I mean, I know we've seen a lot of changes this year. I mean, with the with the uh, seven inning double headers and the bullpen rule where they have to face at least three batters. I just want to know, like, what's your opinion? I know you've been covering baseball for so many years, and this year has been just so weird. So what do you think about all these new rule changes? And do you think MLB will try to kind of keep these in in future years or revert back to the original rules? I think there's a lot of sentiment for seven-inning doubleheaders, except doubleheaders with no one in the stands doesn't hurt owners. Owners mm-hmm. really don't like to play single-admission doubleheaders, which used to be a staple in the old days. Most doubleheaders now are day-night doubleheaders with dual admissions. Um, so, if and most of those are not scheduled that way. They come about because of rainouts and postponements, and you have to make up the games. Uh, so it's possible, I guess, that seven-inning doubleheaders uh, will become part of baseball going forward, but not as nearly as frequent as what we're seeing now. The, the, what we're seeing now is a consequence of a compressed uh, calendar, and also of all the games that had to be postponed because of positive COVID tests. Uh, I don't like a runner on second base mm-hmm. starting extra innings. Um, I think that what they've talked about going forward is a nine-inning game. You play a tenth inning without the runner on second base, then put the runner on second starting in the 11th. I guess that's better. It feels gimmicky to me. Yeah. Luckily, they said that they would not use that in the postseason. I don't think it has any place in the postseason. If a postseason game goes 18 innings, it's dramatic because mm-hmm. there's so much at stake. Uh, a lot of these changes, including each pitcher having to face three batters, unless he concludes an inning in less than three batters, in which mm-hmm. case it doesn't apply, all these these things are of concern for the length and pace of games. Uh, so is pointing at first base on an intentional walk which saves you about 45 seconds. And <laughs> yeah. Baseball averages about one intentional walk per game. It doesn't get to the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is people dawdling around. The heart of the problem is why would you need a 20-second pitch clock with no runner on base when in the past, uh, except maybe in very tight late-inning situations, Tom Seaver, Sandy Koufax, Bob Gibson, they got the ball, they got the sign, and they threw the pitch. You know, right. and guys didn't step out of the box after <laughs> yeah. every pitch, even if they've taken the pitch and adjust mm-hmm. batting gloves that didn't get dislodged. Um, <laughs> that, that's mm-hmm. there's, there's a whole lot of information. There's been a, an analytics revolution in baseball. Mm-hmm. It may be good. It is good uh, to a large extent competitively. And you're not going to get any front office or any manager in a dugout to give up what he believes to be a competitive edge. But all of this information overload contributes to the extended pace of games, the drawn-out pace of games. Pitchers and catchers are considering all the information they've run through their heads, 
You see pitchers take off their caps and look at the notes inside mm-hmm. the caps. Outfielders yeah. look yeah. for how to position themselves. Batters <laughs> step out of the batter's box partly to run through their own minds. Well, the count was one and one. Now it's one and two. What does that change what I know about what the pitcher is likely to throw? And analytics have also told uh, front offices as they put teams together that we don't really care about strikeouts. We value home runs over batting average. Uh, we don't care about stolen bases or hit and runs or sacrifices as much as we once did. Well, if it's all or nothing, you're going to run some very deep counts. You're going to mm-hmm. get less contact early in the count. The game is going to drag on for that reason. Plus, you got fresh arms coming out of the bullpen. It used to be eye popping of someone through 95. Now it's run of the mill. It doesn't cause yep. uh, anybody to raise their eyebrows at all. So these guys come in knowing they can let the throttle out for just one inning. They're pumping high-octane gas at hitters who are con- not concerned with making contact. They're trying to hit the ball out of the ballpark. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does this add up to? It adds up to longer games and a certain sameness within the games without the subtleties of small ball, without the ball in play as much, which means fewer great defensive plays, fewer balls in the gap, fewer relay plays, fewer close plays on the bases. It takes some of the texture and subtlety out of the game while at the same time making it longer. So what may be good for analytics is not good for baseball as an entertainment product, generally speaking. I wonder if anybody, and that's, that's everything you just said I 100% agree with, and I wonder if anybody, like any managers ever put put up four fingers for intentional walk and then they go to first base and they say, never mind. Like, can that even happen? Can you, like, change your mind after someone goes? Because there's no pitches anymore no, with that. No, no, you can't, no, you can't change your mind. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. But once the umpire indicates that, you cannot, you cannot change your mind. Gotcha, yeah. yeah. And then that, that makes sense. That'd be pretty funny, though, if someone went and they were like, no, never mind, let me bring you back. <laughs> that'd be, yeah, also, also, one thing you said that I was agreeing with, you talk about, like, the extra innings. I agree. In the playoffs, there's no way. I just remember... It was the World Series, the Red Sox-Dodgers. It was that game three, went 18 innings. Oh, yeah. I remember watching like, that right. whole game, and it was just so entertaining. I, there were runners on okay, second base. No way it would have been like that. No, that that would be so gimmicky, so gimmicky. Yeah, it's like the NFL isn't smart enough to change its rule from the regular season to the postseason. In the regular season, I know they want to get the games over, uh, especially because the early games run into the 4 o'clock games, and they want those games to be protected for television. Okay, so they say in overtime, if you score a field goal on the first possession, the other team gets a chance to win or tie. But if you score a touchdown on the first possession, the game is over. Why should a postseason game, including the Super Bowl, in a sport that will look at a replay from six different angles to parse a play in the second quarter of a game in mm-hmm. October between two teams that aren't going to make the playoffs and measured it with a millimeter of a first down, but now it's the Super Bowl. Let's flip a coin. What sense <laughs> does that make? Makes no <laughs> sense whatsoever. And yet they, they continue with it, even though they've had constant examples of where Aaron Rodgers or Matt Ryan, the year he was the MVP, or whomever it might have been, Patrick Mahomes two years ago, uh, against the Patriots in the, in the conference championship, they never touched the ball in overtime. Is that mm-hmm. fair competitively? Is it no. good dramatically? No, but they do it anyway. So I wouldn't. Yeah. I hate to see baseball make such a thoughtless rule change. 
Yeah, that correlation yeah, the, the, you just yeah. made makes like perfect. Like that, I didn't even think of that. That's amazing. They made the correlation, and I just remember specifically the Super Bowl where the uh, Patriots were playing the Falcons, and they came down from like I think it was twenty-eight to three, and then right. the Falcons didn't even touch the ball in overtime. That was when I really realized, wow, this right. rule is very dumb. <laughs> right, the rule the rule is dumb, but so too was the approach the Falcons took in the fourth quarter. When <laughs> when if they had just run the ball, it was impossible, almost impossible to lose the game. They yeah. created a oh, – look, the Patriots still had to make the plays, and they had to get two-point conversions after their last two touchdowns. They had to yeah. do all of that. But, but if the Falcons just had played it smart, it couldn't have happened. It also reminds me of when Russell Wilson threw that pass from the two-yard line when they had Marshawn Lynch in the backfield. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People will be talking about that for a very long time, although we won't get into it. Pete Carroll has an explanation. Um, but you can look that up for yourself. Gotcha. All right, so we're going to wrap things up here with kind of like a fun question, probably the one you get asked the most. What is your favorite call from your career from any sport ever? <laughs> My favorite call? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe the one that that kind of resonates the most would be uh, what I mentioned earlier, the call of Michael Jordan's game-winning mm-hmm. and championship-winning shot in Game 6 in 98 against the Jazz. Uh, I also like calls that sum things up. Sometimes mm-hmm. you can do that in commentary after the fact, but if you could do it in the moment, that's a good thing too. In 99, the Yankees played the Braves in the World Series. Uh, the Yankees won three world championships in the second half of the decade, 96, 98, and 99. But the Braves had been perennially in the postseason, and they had won one World Series of their own, and this was the fourth World Series that they were in. And so as that World Series began, we set it up, and I think everyone agreed, it was a series that would determine not only that year's champion, but the team of the decade. It seems obvious now that the Yankees were the team of the decade. The Blue Jays won two World Series early in the decade, But the Braves would have been the most consistently successful team for almost the entire decade, and they would have won as many World Series as the Yankees, too. And they would have appeared in four, and the Yankees and Braves would have split two World Series head-to-head. The Yankees won in 96. The Braves were trying to even the issue in 99. So that was what was at stake. But the Yankees wind up sweeping the World Series. And as it turns out, the last out is a lazy fly ball to left field. Um, And so as the ball is in the air and it's an easy catch, it occurred to me to say, the New York Yankees, world champions, team of the decade, most successful franchise of the century, because it was the last year of the century. And undeniably, the Yankees were baseball's most successful franchise. So those three things came together in that moment. And it wasn't an exciting play. It was a routine fly ball, and the Yankees were well in front. The game wasn't close at that point. But it was a good summation of what that game, that season, and that series had been about. And I guess the Yankee fans, more so than others, it still holds up pretty well. Yes, that that certainly was a great call. But, again, we just want to thank you. Again, we've been with the great Bob Costas. He took time out of you know his very busy day to come on. New York Baseball Podcast. We just really had a great time with you, and from our end, we just wanted to wish you good luck with everything. Thanks so much, Ari.
Thank you, Noah. Good luck to both of you as well. Thank you. Thank you.